service. Disgraceland is brought to you by Disgraceland All Access. Disgraceland All Access membership is your chance to support the show and get ad-free listening, an exclusive scripted episode every month, and exclusive bonus content every week, plus access to an always-on chat with me and your fellow discos. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership or just click on the link in the show notes for this episode. Disgraceland is a production of Double Elvis. Just a quick note to my beloved music nerd listeners out there. I'm quite aware of the fact that the name of the Eagles isn't the Eagles and that it is officially just Eagles. No the. But you know what? I, I can't do it. I can't go an entire episode referring to the band I and everyone else Jeff Lebowski included have slash has forever referred to as the Eagles. It just sounds too fucking weird to just constantly refer to them as Eagles. So even though it's wrong, because it just feels right, for me, Don Henley, Glenn Fry, and company are forever the Eagles. Melotron! Stories about the Eagles are insane. Upon their ascent, the band narrowly avoided arrest from smuggling drugs. One member, on the eve of the band's breakup, skirted potentially devastating legal ramifications from the discovery of an overdosed, underage sex worker in his home. During their early days, the Eagles dosed out on peyote and reimagined and reconfigured a new FM sound for the ages that would result in unimaginable success and excess. Private planes, games of chicken on private planes, and one member surviving a private plane crash. The Eagles as a group very narrowly survived themselves. Decades after the 70s superstardom, the band's status as one of the best-selling artists of all time remains untouchable, with 200 million global record sales. And the Eagles are untouchable, because the Eagles made great music. Unlike that music I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't great music. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron called Chuckwagon Chowdown MK2. I played you that loop because I can't afford the rights to Oh Girl by the Shy Lights. And why would I play you that specific slice of right on time cheese could I afford it? Because that was the number one song in America on June 1st, 1972. And that was the day the Eagles released their self-titled debut album an album that would begin the band's ascent to iconic status and attempt to restore America's innocence with peaceful, easy feelings. On this, part one of a special two-part episode, international drug smuggling, a dead sex worker, a plane crash, and innocence lost at what cost, courtesy of the Eagles. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland. The dead don't laugh, they don't cry either. They don't dance, they don't smile, they don't succeed, fail, fuck, or fight. They don't do much of anything. They're dead, gone, over. In 1980, the Eagles were dead, but they were far from gone. They were everywhere. 
Despite the fact that by the beginning of the decade, the individual members of one of the biggest selling bands of the 1970s, Don Henley, Glenn Fry, Don Felder, Joe Walsh, and Timothy B. Schmidt, had disbanded. But you wouldn't know it from listening to FM radio in the early 80s. And that's because in 1980, as fortunate an event as any Eagle could have imagined happened, the classic rock radio format was invented and made ubiquitous on FM radio dials around the country. For this format, radio station execs needed reliable programming, i.e. music that postdated rock and roll's early oldies era of Elvis Presley and Little Richard, and predated rock's current new wave video era of Talking Heads and Devo. So classic rock radio programmers turned to the peaceful, easy sounds of Southern California's Eagles. Born in the 70s and dead in the water in the 80s, the band's proven hits Hotel California, One of These Nights, Already Gone, Lion Eyes and Take It to the Limit, among what seemed to be an endless parade of other chart toppers from the Eagles' decade-defining studio albums, proved easy fodder for unimaginative radio programmers and thus filled the airwaves. After nearly a solid decade of stadium sellouts, number one singles, top-selling albums, and enough cocaine, sex, and tension to make even the hardest, wildest 70s rock and rollers cry uncle, the Eagles' Glenn Fry called his co-leader in the band, Don Henley, on the telephone. It was over. Glenn was out. No mas. Henley didn't argue. What could he say? Things would get better? Easier? They wouldn't. Don Henley was too practical to not know that. Writing hit songs was tough sledding under the best of circumstances, never mind under constant burnout from the grind of the road, under the distrustful eyes of creatively jealous band members, romantically jealous lovers, or under the gaze of over-demanding, insensitive record label suits whose entire financial quarters could turn on the release of a long-awaited Eagles album, all of whom were gacked to the gills, lovers and band members included unable to see their way through any challenge with clarity, hazed by paranoia and exhaustion, two constants that were as omnipresent as the band's irrepressible hooks and inimitable harmonies. No, Glenn was right. Henley knew it. The Eagles were dead. But even so, classic rock radio kept the band's still heart beating strong. Unlike the heart of the 16-year-old sex worker in Don Henley's bathroom at the moment, her heart was another story. The paramedics moved with the quickness. The young girl had stopped breathing. Voices from the end of the corridor confirmed it. Fear pressed itself hard against the Texas singer's chest. His Mulholland drive home was quickly transformed from idyllic West Coast party scene to crime scene, and there was nothing he or his high-powered representatives could do about it. If the girl was dead, there would likely be no coming back from it. What happened next isn't entirely clear. The only person who's ever told the story is Don Henley himself, and he hasn't said much. Henley claimed he called the paramedics out of a sense of decency. Henley claimed he didn't know she was 16. Henley claimed he didn't have sex with her. Henley admitted he'd solicited the girl from a trusted madam as a gift for his hardworking road crew, a going away gift to make tonight's going away party go off with a little extra oomph. November 21st, 1980, the Eagles were over. Don Henley's road crew were out on their asses. Unlike the 33-year-old rock star who could fall back on what would be a tsunami of royalties from his band's hits, his roadies faced a much less certain financial future. A party with some girls and some blow was the least Mr. Henley could do for them. Or so went the thinking. 
The girl was naked, and there was another girl too, even younger, 15, and the drugs were everywhere. Coke, lewds, grass. Relax, the nightman was calm, unlike the rock star. But then again, the nightman was always calm. A near-dead girl and a little dope wasn't going to rattle him. He'd seen worse. But Don Henley was tense. How could he not be? Henley claimed he took the heat in the moment. When the girl turned up naked, convulsing and near dead, he didn't panic. The fear pulsed though. His head was heavy, his sight dim. He managed to hold tight and grasp control of the moment. Henley claimed he didn't dart about his house to flush the drugs. He focused on helping the girl. He called the paramedics, and the paramedics called the cops, and the cops called the department's sexually exploited child unit, and Don Henley, co-founder of the Eagles, called his lawyer, for he was under arrest. And the fear was now enough to make his chest explode. The fear was always there in some way or another, going as far back as his days in Linden, Texas as a boy. Sure, his upbringing had him high on the sounds of T-Bone Walker and Hank Williams, but down in the dust was that lingering fear of where his future would take him, or more specifically, if his future would take him anywhere at all. His father owned an auto parts store and he saved pennies, and then nickels, and then dimes, and eventually enough quarters that when coupled with whatever savings teenage Don Henley himself scrapped together from gigging around Northern Texas in his high school bands amounted to enough to cover the tuition at North Texas State University. But college didn't hold. His English lit classes interested him. However, college presented a new kind of fear. Fear of becoming something you weren't. A jag. Just another guy. Don Henley was not just another guy. There was greatness in him. He knew this. Henley was more than just college. Or at least he sensed that the world held more for him than the boredom and straightness of academia. He buttonholed another Texan, Kenny Rogers. Rogers had success with his group, the first edition. Kenny Rogers recognized something in Don Henley. Call it game, recognizing game. Call it just dropping in to see what condition the kid's condition was in. Call it whatever you want. For Don Henley, his group, Shiloh, was the play they called. Kenny Rogers as producer was the coach. In Los Angeles, California, was the field of opportunity. Go west, go west, go west, young man, and see what the sun has set in motion. Manifest destiny. Los Angeles, sunny Southern California. It was a rock and roll gold rush in 1970. The Beach Boys had established the California sound in the mid 60s, but it had evolved from sunny and surfy to electric folk to psychedelia. In each evolution struck another motherload of pop hits. Now nestled in the dust and blacktop ribbons of Laurel Canyon, just north of Hollywood, was one of the most fertile artistic communities in the world. Cross-pollinating musical ideas and band members, the Birds, the Mamas and the Papas, Buffalo Springfield, all culminating in the Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young supergroup of the late 60s, with their honeyed vocal harmonies, thick acoustic bliss, and massive success. On any given night in the city, Music legends and the Laurel Canyon scenesters would crowd Doug Weston's Troubadour on Santa Monica, where Buffalo Springfield had debuted in 66, and where, in 1970, Elton John had made his thunderous U.S. debut. The Troubadour in 1970 was something else. It was where careers were made, where low-key folksters made it with bronze dime spot California girls on the make, and where rock and roll dreams came to life in Hollywood Technicolor. 
It was where greatness actually seemed possible to a starry-eyed musician from a one-stop town in nowhere, Texas. It was where Don Henley met JD, and where he met Jackson, and most importantly, where he met Glenn. Hey, Discos, it's Jake here. Thank you so much for listening to Disgraceland. Your support truly means a lot to me, and it's because of you that my team and I are able to make this show. If you want more Disgraceland, if you want more regular interactions with me and the community of Disgraceland listeners, or if you simply want to listen to the show ad-free, go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership, or just click on the link in the show notes for this episode. For just five bucks a month, you can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. You'll also get weekly unscripted bonus content, special audio collections, and early access to merch and events. There are two ways that you can support the show and become a member at disgracelandpod.com slash membership. You can sign up using Patreon and listen to the show ad-free on Apple, Spotify, and most other major podcast platforms. And Patreon members also get access to all the other perks of membership in an always-on chat where I'll be interacting with you and diving deeper into the world of Disgraceland. But maybe you're currently an Apple Podcast subscription listener and you want to just tap into all the bonus audio content and ad-free listening that we're offering. We're also offering this membership as a premium channel on Apple Podcasts. However you choose to join, all you got to do is go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Support the show for just $5 a month, five bucks, or sign up for an annual plan and get two months free. Come join me and your fellow discos at Disgraceland All Access by visiting disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Glenn Fry was in Mexico, 20 years old, confidence radiating off of his young, toned, tanned body. Quickly, he loaded the contraband, tightly packed bags of cheap Acapulco gold marijuana onto his pickup. American-made, born in Detroit, just like him. The pickup was solid, reliable, capable of making the 100-plus mile trip from south of the border to Los Angeles without breaking down and getting flagged by the customs man. The desert highway was dark, the wind cool blowing through Glenn's long, dark hair, light in the distance, shimmering, beckoning. The Kalita in the ashtray burned sweetly. Innocence shadowed his big, round, almond-colored eyes. He could feel it in his chest excitement, anticipation. Los Angeles, California, there was nowhere in the world like it. At least not in Glenn Fry's young world, which at the time consisted of just Detroit, Michigan, San Francisco, and some drug dealer's den on the border. LA came as advertised. Girls that were somehow more beautiful than the weather. Music on every stage. Opportunity, it seemed, on every corner. Hell, David Crosby was right there, man, on Sunset, just walking down the street in his flat-brimmed hat like everyone else. Detroit, Glenn's hometown, was a different trip entirely. Music didn't surround you in the Motor City so much as it punched you in the face. It was ubiquitous, but the barrier for entry was steeper. Barry Gordy wasn't banging down Glenn Fry's door anytime soon to sign him to Detroit's Motown records. But another Michigan native was more welcoming, Bob Seger. Beginning in the early 1960s, as incredible as it might sound today, 
It was hard to find another musician anywhere, never mind in Detroit, who better embodied the rock and roll spirit than Bob Seger. He and his bands, first the Bob Seger System, then Bob Seger and the Last Herd, and later the Silver Bullet Band, were live forces of nature, putting in work night after night on the Midwest circuit with a mix of traditional blue-eyed R&B and mid-60s frat rock energy in a way that would help solidify what true classic rock would become. Bob Seger brought it night after night, and as he experienced local rocker with a steady lineup of shows and a record contract to boot, he brought a young, ambitious, irrepressible local kid named Glenn Fry under his wing in a half-assed sort of mentor-slash-protege kind of way. Glenn made the most of his opportunity. Music was his ticket out. From where or what, he didn't really know, just out. Out of teen gangland, out of Detroit, out of going nowhere fast. A chance at becoming somebody, something, something more, something great. He made the most of his first opportunity when asked to sit in on backing vocals for Bob Seger's second major label single, 1969's Rambling Gambling Man. And Glenn Fry came in hot on the first chorus. You can hear the ambition in his voice as he shadows Seeger. It's a pronouncement of someone new hitting the scene. Someone not like some other guys. Someone not content with the shadows of the stage. Someone destined for greatness. Rambling Gambling Man hit number 62 on the pop charts and gave young Glenn Fry a taste. Music was a way. It was possible. He loaded up his pickup and split for the coast. No job, no band, no plan, just confidence. In himself, he'd figure it out. That's what the Acapulco Gold was all about. He'd break it off in smaller bags for the heads down on Sunset and walk away with some walking around money to get him started. Enough to drink down at the famous Troubadour on a weeknight and see what kind of trouble he could get himself into. Glenn quickly connected with the Troubadour's local Lothario, J.D. Souther, an Amarillo stickman who knew his way around not only the local scene, but around a country chord progression as well. J.D. met Glenn through one of Glenn's exes. Quickly, the two men developed a bond around music. Glenn brought a street-smart R&B toughness to J.D.'s natural country roots. They took up under the name Long Branch Pennywhistle as a duo and settled into a cheap apartment in Echo Park to woodshed some original songs. In the one-room apartment downstairs, another local songwriter was putting on a master class in songwriting every morning. Glenn could hear him through the floorboards, up at 9 a.m., straight to a pit stop at the stove where the songwriter would set a tea kettle alight. Then he'd work out the first verse, the chord progression on the keyboard with the vocal melody over and over again. The kettle would blow off steam, the songwriter would break, pour his cup, let it steep, back to the bench, time for the chorus. The chord progression on keyboard with the vocal melody on top, just like the first verse, over and over again. Then he'd retrieve his tea, settle, sip, on to the second verse, same as the first, over and over. He'd break for a sip here and there to grease his vocal cords and then straight back at it. From the second verse to the second chorus to the middle eight, the final verse and the outro. When all was said and done, it would be lunch and the song would be not only worked out, but fused by muscle memory. Glenn Fry knew the dude downstairs was onto something, and the dude downstairs was Jackson Brown. Blessed with the good looks of everybody's favorite little brother, Jackson Brown was, at an early age, already an experienced, not to mention naturally gifted singer-songwriter. He'd grown up in LA, but by the time he'd crossed paths with Glenn Fry, he'd already been around the block. Having completed a songwriter's pilgrimage to New York City's Greenwich Village, 
where he'd witnessed firsthand the culture-defining rattle of the Velvet Underground, wound up backing their singer Nico on stage and personally fallen in and out of bed with her in the process. Nico's iconic world-weary signature ballad these days, Jackson Brown wrote that when he was 16. After New York, Jackson Brown wound up back in Los Angeles at the turn of the decade with a head full of inspiration and just enough experience to turn that inspiration into a coveted record contract. None of it surprised the blue-collar Glenn Fry, who could hear Jackson Brown's discipline emanate through his kitchen floor every morning. This was how the greats did it, through hard work. It wasn't just fast cars, grass, and bronzed babes. It was putting in work. It was hustle. And in Los Angeles in 1970, when it came to the folk scene anyway, no one had more hustle or was more of a hustler than David Geffen. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. David Geffen believed in Jackson Brown before anyone else believed in Jackson Brown because David Geffen believed in himself. Or perhaps because David Geffen had what traders of any commodity covet most, inside knowledge. How he got that knowledge was anyone's guess. When he was coming up in the mailroom at the William Morris Agency, he simply took it, steaming open letters to agency executives to gain inside information on what opportunities were available for him to pounce upon. But when it came to Jackson Brown, David Geffen didn't need anyone to tell him about Jackson's talent. Not his clients, Crosby, Stills, or Nash, or Laura Nero. Geffen just knew. It was obvious. Jackson Brown was going to write hits and become a star. He wasn't like the other artists in Geffen's circle. Jackson had it all, talent, drive, and good looks. How no one else in the music industry besides David Geffen saw all of that only reinforced Geffen's belief in himself, that he alone had a special understanding of talent and thus success. Ahmed Erdogan, founder of Atlantic Records, believed in David Geffen, even if he didn't believe in Jackson Brown. When Geffen went to Erdogan for a record contract for Jackson Brown, who Geffen was now managing, Erdogan told Geffen that if he believed so strongly in his artist, that he then should start his own record label, and Atlantic would distribute the records. David Geffen took to the challenge, and with his managing partner, Elliot Roberts, Geffen founded the artist-friendly Asylum Records. And that's artist-friendly as in the artists or the inmates were running the asylum. It was the spirit of the early 70s when musical artistry trumped everything in the folk-inspired pop scene. In 1971, in the record business, to be for the artist was to be at the vanguard of hipness. It was who David Geffen was. It was why Asylum was perfect for a song-focused artist like Jackson Brown. And Jackson Brown had friends, talented friends, friends who hung out nightly at the Troubadour. Don Henley made the scene immediately upon arriving in L.A. The Troubadour's doors swung open, and so too did the doors to his own slice of heaven on earth. On his first night inside the club, he saw Neil Young and Linda Ronstadt just hanging out, and they were both already firmly established as stars. Don Henley couldn't believe his newfound lot in life. His band Shiloh booked a gig, but it was clear quickly that Shiloh was going nowhere. Henley fell in with Glenn Fry, who had already firmly made the scene. Glenn and Henley sat in with J.D. Souther in the front room of the Troubadour and traded songs with Jackson Brown. Don Henley, Texas boy that he was, vibed on the laid-back country stylings that came naturally to all involved, even for Glenn Fry, the boy from Detroit. Glenn's hard R&B influence tempered the dusty honky-tonks swinging from Henley's sticks and snare. 
together, amalgamated with J.D. Souther's direct country take on Jackson Brown's breezy Southern California songwriting, something special started to happen, and Linda Ronstadt took note, recruiting Glenn Fry and Don Henley to become part of her live band. She recruited J.D. Souther for something else, her bedroom. In Anaheim in 1971, Glenn and Henley backed Linda Ronstadt, alongside two other musicians, Poco's Randy Meisner on bass and the Flying Burrito Brothers' Bernie Ledden on guitar and banjo. The four backing musicians felt it, and Linda Ronstadt did too, especially when they sang, in harmony, voices rushing up from far away, snapping you to attention, enough to wake you up no matter the time of day. Dantana's, 1972, Santa Monica Boulevard. If the Troubadour was the place to be, Dantana's was the place next to the place to be. An old school red and white checkered Italian restaurant that served as a pre and post hang for Troubadour regulars. Not to mention an old school Hollywood power player clubhouse where attendees got up to all manner of no good on a regular basis. David Geffen sat in a corner booth surrounded by Southern California folk rock royalty. Jackson Brown, Joni Mitchell among them. A pregame of sorts before a party later that night at the Laurel Canyon home of Geffen's business partner, Elliot Roberts, where the guest list would include Hollywood's young elite. Jack Nicholson, Peter Fonda, and Dennis Hopper, among more rock royals, Michelle Phillips, Cass Elliot, Neil Young, and John Sebastian. But back at Dan Tana's gathered for their pre-party feast, David Geffen stabbed at his broiled swordfish with his steely knife and called for more wine. Jackson Brown was unusually uncool, in Geffen's ear constantly about putting his friend Glenn Fry under contract with him in Asylum Records. Geffen was aware of Fry, whose reputation as a singer, songwriter, and potential frontman was beginning to make the rounds due to his stint on the road and then in the studio with Linda Ronstadt. Fry's reputation was growing quickly, so much so that Columbia Records' Clive Davis was circling and ready to sign him right out from under Geffen. But innocent as Glenn Fry was, he understood what most artists often fail to understand and what David Geffen sure as shit never failed to understand, and that is that artists, at least the ones who can create and perform at a high level, are the rarest of commodities. Like professional athletes, there are only so many people in the world who can do what they do. And for record label owners and music managers, those artists, those rare few are all they got. Their business is entirely dependent on them, on the artist. The rub is that artists are naturally insecure. They operate from a position of fear and too often lose sight of the power they actually possess when it comes to business and therefore allow themselves to be taken by the businessmen. Glenn Fry was not naturally insecure, quite the opposite. He was brimming with confidence, even at a young age. Jackson Brown saw it, everyone on the scene saw it, and it would be David Geffen's great loss if he too didn't see it soon. But David Geffen wasn't used to losing and he was clearly no dummy. He got the message and despite Clive Davis's aggressive stab at Glenn Fry, Geffen was able to preempt Columbia Records. David Geffen went on a shopping spree, Long in the process of signing Linda Ronstadt away from her existing record contract, he moved quickly to secure the rights to her backing band. And that meant purchasing the existing small-time record contract for Long Branch Penny Whistle, Glenn Fry's band with J.D. Souther, as well as the small-time record contract for Shiloh, Don Henley's band. David Geffen's Asylum Records now not only owned Jackson Brown, but Linda Ronstadt, Glenn Fry, and Don Henley as well as other solo artists Tom Waits, Joni Mitchell, and of course, J.D. Souther. 
Glenn Fry corralled the players behind that magic on stage in Anaheim with Linda, Don Henley on drums, Bernie Ledden on banjo and guitar, and Randy Meisner on bass. Together with J.D. Souther and Jackson Brown in formerly contributing bits of songs, they set about to become, like so many before them, America's next great rock and roll band. To become just that, there was only one name possible for the band, only one name that contained the requisite combination of inspiration and aspiration, only one name capable of representing the greatness Glenn Fry and Don Henley sought, only one name American enough, the Eagles. The late 1960s, America torn apart. Vietnam, fast approaching 50,000 soldiers dead. Martin Luther King Jr. dead. Robert F. Kennedy dead. Riots in the streets, Detroit, DC, Watts. The early 70s, more dead in Vietnam, crossing the 50,000 milestone like nothing. Cambodia, Agent Orange, Watergate, and then, finally, arrest. A crack in the chaos. California sunshine sneaking through, something approaching hope, a new decade, a chance at no more war, no more death, a fucking break, a peaceful, easy feeling. By the time the Eagles' self-titled debut record was released on Geffen Records in 1972, America couldn't have been more ready for the breezy, countrified Southern California sound of the Eagles. A decade of discord and this, this sounded like harmony. Glenn Fry, Don Henley, Bernie Letton, and Randy Meisner's self-titled debut album was a smash. Just like David Geffen, Jackson Brown, and anyone with ears who heard and saw the Eagles come together knew would be the case. Everyone except their chosen producer, the renowned Glenn Johns. He couldn't hear it, so the record almost never happened. To Johns, the Eagles were confused. One part country, one part rock, one part acoustic, one part electric. Sonically, Glenn Johns believed the band didn't know who they were or what they wanted to be, until they opened their mouths and started singing together and those beautiful vocal harmonies came out. They were somehow gritty and angelic at the same time, dusty like the desert floor, sublime like the desert sky. The Eagles were their own trip. After recording their debut, they shipped off to the desert to capture photographs for the cover of their album. Before making the 140-mile trip to Joshua Tree, they loaded up on tequila shots at the Troubadour, closed the joint, then piled into a late-model American sedan with room for the band plus their photographers, a cooler of beer, more tequila, and a pouch of peyote squirreled away in the glove compartment, and sped off to capture sunrise in the desert before it passed. The peyote kicked in hard. On his back, Glenn Fry stared at the desert sky. The blinding sun turned the blue sky to silver glass, a mirror on the ceiling, cutting through an actual eagle. Glenn would never forget this. It was so on the nose, but one of those things that actually happened. He would later tell the story over and over again, but now in the moment, it freaked him the fuck out. It was all over. This was the moment. One of those points in your life where you can feel the punctuation happen, where you know life will never be the same where you feel your past life compartmentalized into a mental archive right there in real time. You're on the precipice of something. There is only one direction, 
forward, away from the past, but you can feel yourself being pulled back as you run for the door. That passage back is the wrong way, or so you think. Innocence can never be regained. What remains is only experience. You're shot at something big, at something grand, at something great. Life in the fast lane wouldn't truly present itself for a few years to come, but it began here in the desert and then on the road and on the airwaves. Peaceful, easy feeling, witchy woman in the brilliant leadoff track, Take It Easy, co-written with Jackson Brown. The song's Hank Williams-inspired lyrical simplicity, magical harmonies, and perfect mix of banjo and driving rock rhythm resulted in a masterful work of pop Americana magic. Take It Easy does what the greatest pop songs throughout history have done, gives the masses what they don't even know they want. As with many turning points in history, music provided an alternative, a relief from the status quo and relief from the turbulent 60s. Just like the Beatles, I want to hold your hand did in the aftermath of the Kennedy assassination. And just like Nirvana did with Smells Like Teen Spirit in the wake of the overtly commercial 1980s. The Eagles had arrived with three bonafide smash hits off their debut album, and nothing for any member of the band would ever be the same. I'm Jake Brennan, and this episode of Disgraceland is to be continued. Disgraceland was created by yours truly and is produced in partnership with Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at disgracelandpod.com. If you're listening as a Disgraceland All Access member, thank you for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. And if not, you can become a member right now by going to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Members can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. Weekly unscripted bonus episodes, special audio collections, and early access to merchandise and events. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership for details. Rate and review the show and follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook at DisgracelandPod. And on YouTube at youtube.com slash at DisgracelandPod. Rock a roller.